The richer you get, the harder it is to manage your estate. There's lots of moving parts like portfolio diversity, tax mitigation, asset protection, and estate planning. That's why the ultra wealthy use family offices, and that's where Valerity Wealth comes in for you. Run by a former sovereign wealth fund manager, Valerity Wealth brings institutional level expertise to the high paid professional. Let Valerity quarterback your finances. Book your free consultation at ValerityWealth.com. You are listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast with Buck Joffrey. Get ready to change your life. Welcome, everybody. This is Buck Joffrey with the Wealth Formula Podcast. And uh, this is Christmas week, so we're sort of taking it easy here in Wealth Formula land. I'm going to do an Ask Buck show today. And uh, before we get there, though, I want to remind you to make sure to go to wealthformula.com. There's lots of resources there for you to check out, including free books. Uh, You have my ebook, Seven Secrets of Eternal Wealth, which you can download there. It was a bestseller on Amazon. And you also have a real book that you can get, George Newberry's book on burn zones, the book that every real estate investor must read about the big ups and the big downs of a real estate entrepreneur. Uh, Check that out at wealthformula.com. Also, I want to invite those of you who have not had an opportunity to check it out yet to the Wealth Formula Network community. This is a private community that is all part of this thing that we call your Roadmap to Real Wealth. It includes a course that has the likes of uh, Rich Dad Advisors, Tom Wheelwright and Ken McElroy, the real estate guys, uh, Dean Graziosi, we got Christian Allen. We got a whole bunch of really, really good people and, uh, and to teach them what you need to know. This was the course that I wanted to create because after I read Kiyosaki's Cash Flow Quadrant in 2008, maybe, yeah, I think it was 2008, my, I was so excited, but then I was like, what next? What next? What do I do now? And that's what this course is all about. Now, the course also comes with membership to the Wealth Formula Network, as I mentioned before. This includes additional content on our private portal as well as a as a private Facebook group and finally probably the most popular thing of them all is the bi-weekly mastermind calls which uh, which people really get into and then we archive these you can listen to these on your own if you can't make them etc so anyway check that all out at wealthformularoadmap.com one last thing I should mention before I get started that is As we get here to the new year, we're going to have lots of great opportunities for those of you who are accredited investors. Now, what is an accredited investor again? It's not something you apply for. You either are or you are not. And it really is based on your income and net worth. If you are accredited, it means you have uh, you make at least $200,000 per year, 300,000 if filing jointly or you have a net worth of $1 million outside of your personal residence. If you qualify, you should definitely go to wealthformula.com and sign up for Investor Club because that's where a lot of the magic happens where you can start using a lot of these things that we talk about over and over in this podcast. So again, go to wealthformula.com and check that out. Now, finally, Let's get on with this show. So this is, of course, the Ask Buck Christmas edition. And if it were up to me, I would love to go out there and give each and every one of you a gift this year. So I'm going to do that the only way I know how to do that, because if you're listening to that, I can give you some words of wisdom 
which, of course, should not be confused with financial advice. Take them or leave them, but they have served me well. So we're going to get on to some buckisms, cliches, whatever you want to call them. But here's just a little bit of advice. First of all, we've talked about this before. Invest in people, not deals. Now, this is true whether you're investing on your own as an owner-operator or as a passive investor. Now, it's easy to understand from the perspective of a passive investor, right? Once word gets around that you might have a little bit of money and you're looking to invest in syndications and private placements, you're going to get a lot of garbage thrown your way. My advice, if you don't know who it's coming from, delete it. Proformas and glossy offering memorandums can be made to look whatever way you want them to look. You can make swampland in Florida look good on paper, right? Listen, it's like putting lipstick on a pig. Work with people that you know, like, and trust and who you think are competent because you might know, like, and trust people, but if they say, hey, I'm thinking about doing something for the first time, you want to put $100,000 into this? You might think twice or you might... Think twice if somebody says, hey, I've got a full-time job and I want to take down a $20 million asset. What do you say you put in some money? Well, you might think twice about that one too. So obvious when you're passive, right? No like and trust. But what if you're contemplating a new venture on your own or are thinking about buying your own apartment building for the first time? Well, same principle here. Invest in people, not deals. In this case, The people is you. You have to invest in yourself. You have to take the time to learn and get the help you need from mentors and masterminds. Because, as I said before, and I'll say again, if you're going into a dark cave for the first time, bring someone who's been there before. And to be sure on this one, please be careful because there are so many gurus out there who aren't going to help you that much. You know, they're going to, retire me, we're going to we're gonna help you retire, we're going to help you make millions, etc. You know, the reality is that most of them are just too busy selling their programs to be true mentors to you. So if you can, find a real person who's done this before, who's willing to take you under their wing, who's got some scar tissue, because anybody knows that you can't have success in this world without mistakes. But the good news is, They don't have to be your mistakes. Finally, remember to keep an open mind and try to learn from multiple sources. Now, a great mentor is great in the sense that, you know, it should serve, that mentor should serve as a foundation for your ongoing learning. Get perspectives from others, though, right? I have found that perfectly intelligent people can disagree on how things can be done, and both or neither can be right at the same time. That's a fact, believe it or not, uh, even uh, despite American politics. Now, I say this, this is really important because I've missed out personally on some big opportunities in the past few years because I kept listening to the same people crying wolf about the economy over and over and telling me to stay out of things, look the other way, and, you know, the sky's about to fall. But Chicken Little wasn't right. You know, I I made a lot of money during that period of time, but I could have made a lot more. What I have found is that when everyone thinks the same thing, it's usually time to second guess the assumptions that are being made and look somewhere else for people who are saying something else. That doesn't mean that they're right, but you got to hear what the other ideas in the room are, right? You can't all be, 
you know, uh, you, you can't be just kind of sheltered from the rest of the world and its ideas. You have to listen to people who disagree with you. So please keep listening to my podcast and become an active member of the Wealth Formula community. Join Wealth Formula Network. But also listen to others or read others who have different perspectives than me. And tell me if you think I'm wrong. I mean, you have my email. I answer every one of them unless you're just, you know, insulting me or something. Tell me why I'm wrong. And when you tell me I'm wrong, don't tell me it's because you're a follower of some other blogger or podcaster and they said so. That's the one that really irritates me. You know, I'm here to learn. I am here to teach. And on my end, I'm going to continue and try not to let myself get boxed into one kind of thinking and to continue to provide you with what I consider truly unique and useful content that isn't just a replay of someone else's podcast. In terms of Wealth Formula podcast and what we can do here, I think we've just scratched the surface. So anyway, that is, uh, that is my little shtick for this Christmas episode. We're on to an Ask Buck episode uh, this is actually going to spill over into the following week as well because we got so many questions. Merry Christmas, and we'll be right back after these messages. Warren Buffett, BlackRock, and other institutional players dominate investments in commercial aviation. Why? Because it's one of the most profitable and predictable alternative assets that exists. And it's not tied to other markets such as real estate and the stock market. Is it safe? Well, imagine triple net leases to the likes of American Airlines and British Airways. Income is contractual and guaranteed by some of the biggest named airlines in the world. That's why this kind of investment was never available to the ordinary accredited investor. That is until now. Visit accesswealthaviation.com and check it out for yourself. Invest in an institutional team with over 200 plus years of combined investment experience in the aviation sector conservative investing with double-digit returns and tax advantages. That's accesswealthaviation.com, accesswealthaviation.com. Self-storage is a necessary evil. It's where you keep your stuff and forget about it. No wonder this stuff is so profitable and recession-resistant. The Wealth Formula community, well, we've benefited from that. We've made lots of money in this space with Reliant Real Estate, one of the largest self-storage companies in the country. With an average investor internal rate of return of almost 34%, with hold times just over three and a half years, these guys know what the meaning of velocity of money is. If you're an accredited investor, make sure to check out what they're up to right now at ReliantFund4.com. Again, that's ReliantFund4.com. Welcome back to the show, everyone. This is a special show today. It is the Christmas edition of Ask Buck. Today, joining me, I have got two of the people who helped me with all of this wealth formula stuff. The first person many of you have spoken to is Phil. Phil, you want to say hello? Hello, hello. Hello, Phil. Phil is, of course, the media guy. A number of you have uh, encountered Phil uh, in various ways, and I apologize for that. Just kidding, Phil. Um, and then we also have Madeline. Now, I have to let you in on a little secret. For those of <laughs> you who have uh, have been emailing with Joni, Joni is actually Madeline. <laughs> Madeline? I love it. <laughs> so you may be asking why. It's because Madeline was my assistant. She's been my assistant for 
a long time. What you know? When did you start? Three years. And, yeah. Uh, so it's like by far and away the longest lasting assistant I've ever had, and so that says a lot about Madeline. Um, I like but, to think of her uh, her Joni as her uh, superheroine alter ego. Well, yeah, Joni that's by right. Day and Madeline by night. So what? So what happened? What happened? What was the weird thing? And the reason why her email is always Joni at wealthformula.com now is that is that Madeline went away for a brief period of time to finish up her degree. And she wasn't sure if she wanted to, you know, go off and teach or if she wanted to come back. Um, we wanted her to come back, obviously. But and anyway, we hired somebody named Joni in the interim. And then Joni didn't work out, and, and we ended up having somebody else. Uh, and then finally Madeline came back. But it, rather than put everybody through the turmoil of having multiple emails for my assistant, we just stuck Joni's email. So Joni is... Joni is actually Madeline, so that's a secret. <laughs> now I don't have anyone to blame if something goes wrong. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. But so, so everybody who thinks Joni's great, it's actually Madeline that is great. And Phil, well, Phil is just Phil. So, yep. um, so anyway, guys, uh, thanks for uh, thanks for everything that you do for me. I know I'm not the most uh, easy uh, person to work with but uh but um uh, I'm glad uh, you guys are here to help me out. So, uh Madeline and Phil are going to help me with this show today by asking questions, playing audio, etc. And so, um let's just, you know, let's go crazy. Let's just get started here. We have we have a mixture of written questions and audio questions. Why don't we start with the first one here? Uh it's from uh Parker Parker, why don't, and and Phil, why don't we why don't we play that uh, that question? Hey, Buck, this is Parker. Uh, really enjoy being part of the group. Thanks again for uh, everything you provide in the podcast. I wanted to get your thoughts on investing or buying uh, non-performing notes from the bank, especially given uh, the current climate within the market cycles, etc. I wanted to see if you put any thought into it. Thanks. Uh, good question, Parker. In fact, I have thought about this a great deal. In fact, I thought about it enough so that I actually signed up for a course because, um, you know, there's a general rule. I like to say that if you're going to go into a dark cave, go there with somebody who's been there before. Uh, and uh, sure, you can, you know, learn. You got to learn from mistakes, but they don't have to be your mistakes, et cetera, et cetera. There are a million different things. So I signed up for this course. And I actually paid a ton of money. And uh, it was a lousy course, and I didn't learn anything. After this, I was sort of disappointed, and I called my friend George Newberry, who you know is the founder um, and chairman now of AHP Servicing, formerly known as AHP, uh, American Homeowner uh, Preservation. And I said, to George, can I come to your office and just learn this stuff? And so George said, yes. So he invited me to Chicago, and actually Phil came out there with me. We recorded for two days the process. And at some point, we're going to release this to everybody. Um, it's not going to be something that we're selling or something. It's just literally just pure information for anybody who wants to go through the process. But suffice it to say that it is, it's not easy. I thought it sounded kind of easy, right? You just buy some notes and, you know, you either modify or you, um, you know, or, or you foreclose, etc. 
the bottom line is that there's a tremendous amount of due diligence uh, involved with buying these things. And the information is so scattered that it is extremely time-consuming. And so I go to the HP servicing office in Chicago, and they've got like a whole, you know, floor just full of people working on this stuff. And I'm not saying it can't be done. It can be on an individual basis. But I think the mistake is to think that this is something that you can kind of do, you know, with very passively, like almost like turnkey rentals or or something like that. It's it's really not. I certainly would not say I'm not interested because I, I am. In fact, I, you know, I did buy a few notes from George. I bought re-performing notes, for, for which were not non, you know, they, they were performing. Previously, they were not performing. I bought ones that I thought were pretty safe. I looked at ones where there was equity, etc. But again, the major point that I want to bring out here is that I think it's a good space to be in. I think what you're finding in that market, though, is even the notes are getting expensive. So whereas non-performing and, you know, re-performing or whatever, all these things you were getting crazy yields before now, uh, the yields are not nearly as good as they were. But the risk potentially, you could argue, is potentially even higher because if there's a down cycle, you may have more defaults. So, you know, of course, the other alternative then to do what I always consider a conservative approach, which is to invest in a, in a fund that's doing it. And George's fund, of course, uh, I'm not a partner in any way or anything like that, but I am. Uh, I have invested in his fund, AHP Servicing, many times. And this year's fund is, it's tighter. It's 10%, not 12%, but it's still really good and for doing nothing. And I think it's going to be a $50 million fund. Again, it's one of those situations where, all right, right now, if you can on your own get 12% or 14%, and, but there's a, a risk that somebody just stops paying, or you're in the middle of a big fund that pays 10% and it's so big and so liquid that it's you know constantly throwing off a consistent amount, you know you have to kind of make that decision. But I think that, but right now, if you are thinking about it, it might be a good time to learn because I do think that there will be probably some cycle turn where more and more of this stuff will become available and the yields might go a little bit higher. So that's all I have to say about that. I will stick to it. Okay, so let's see. Madeline, uh, who's the next question from? Mike says, Buck, I really enjoy listening to your podcasts. I look forward to them each Sunday. I have been thinking about agriculture and looking for syndications for agriculture in the U.S. I know you have talked about coffee and chocolate before in other countries, and the benefits of agriculture, but wanted to know your thoughts on U.S. agriculture syndications and if you have found a good provider or would consider putting together a syndication. Thanks, and keep the good shows coming. So thanks for the compliment and the question, Mike. What I will tell you is, uh, first, I want to make a, a quick disclaimer and understand that the the shows that I had are for educational purposes only, and particularly early on in the podcast when I was really first starting out, I was, you know, I just pretty much was out there getting different opinions and different opportunities, but I was not vetting any of these things um, ahead of time. So I want to make sure it's clear that just because I have somebody on the show, especially the earlier shows, that it is uh, that you don't assume that I consider it a good investment or that I am investing in those things myself. So. So just to be clear on that, do your own diligence. And, you know, I mean, I think I think just understand that this is education 
and um, you know, don't assume I'm investing in it. So that said, I let's go back to your question. Just in terms of agriculture in general, I I love agriculture. Okay, I love the idea of agriculture. Why? Because you go back to the whole reason why I like multifamily real estate. So there's this thing called Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? People need what do they need? First and foremost, they need food. They need water. They need uh, and then they need shelter and safety after that, right? Shelter and safety is multifamily, but obviously food and water is agriculture. Now, I will say that the challenge that I have had on the agricultural side is exactly what, you know, it sounds like you're having some issues too, which is like it's not easy to find like an investment that really makes sense. They tend to fall into two categories and from what I've seen. One is that they're too small I personally am not really that into investing in foreign foreign agriculture. I do want to have some kind of stability to to the agriculture itself and you know I I'm not of the school that says that investing outside of the US is something that everyone should do because I think the US economy is is by far and away the biggest and I mean I think if if um you know if if the U.S. goes down everywhere else is going down. You have a lot more protections in the U.S. Now, I will say also that one of the challenges that I have had in finding you know good things to invest in is that people understand that with great operators in the area of agriculture, that it is um, this is not something that people make a lot of money on because it's very reliable, right? It's, it's, you know, you're going to be looking at yields that are pretty low if you're getting like, you know, six, 7%. That's what I could talk to like larger groups and they say they're going to get you six or 7%. You know, that, that just hasn't really appealed to me. That said, if there's an opportunity that I think that is, um, is worthwhile, I'll certainly bring it to the attention of the investor club, uh, which by the way, if uh, any of you are accredited investors and have not signed up, you absolutely should. Accredited just means uh, you have uh, you make a couple you know two hundred thousand dollars a year, or you have a net worth of at least a million dollars outside of your personal residence. Now, going back to um, uh, agriculture, the other issue with it is again it is a little bit frothy because there's a lot of money going in there for safe harbor, you know, trying to to hedge the economy, et cetera. And there's not a lot of opportunity for in in agriculture that the way there is in real estate for what you would call a value add, right? So in multifamily real estate or any real estate for that matter, there's always the opportunity for to force equity by increasing net operating income and therefore the value of a given property. Agriculture is not really like that. I mean, I guess you could do value add type agriculture, but I have not found anything anything remotely that I'm comfortable with right now. But it's a good question. And if you find something of interest, let me know. But as you know, my process for vetting these things takes a long time, too. So let's see, uh, Madeline, why don't you do the uh, next question? I think we actually have some audio there. Hi, Buck. This is Ravi Ganta. I do appreciate all of the hard work that you do, and I enjoy your podcast. Uh, one quick question I had was regarding oil and gas investments. I wasn't sure if you had a episode regarding that and if there's any particular sponsor or company that you would recommend i would like to learn more about this and would consider investing in this asset class for the benefits of 
taxes as well as ca potential cash flow. Thanks very much, Buck. Bye-bye. So uh, thanks for the question, Ravi. So a couple a couple of things. Obviously, I can't really recommend um, I can't recommend any particular operator or anything on the show. I can't really give financial advice. But uh, a couple of things I'll point out. One is, Ravi, I'm pretty sure, I'm almost positive you were part of Wealth Formula Network. If you go to the archive uh, mastermind calls that are biweekly, um, you can see there's an entire phone call on that. And, uh, and so check that out. And if anyone else is interested in that whole Wealth Formula Network opportunity with the course and the mastermind calls, et cetera, you can uh, go to wealthformularoadmap.com and check that out. Um, maybe it's a good Christmas gift. Who knows? Anyway, um, but I will say this, okay, on that call, I had very little to offer because generally speaking, my own experiences with uh, oil and gas have not been good. We have done podcasts with oil and gas people in the past, but even ones that are no like trust category people, they have lost a lot of money because why? Because inherently this is a highly speculative area and um, apart from, you know, a couple couple guys in our in our uh, investor group who've had some luck with it, you know, virtually everybody else I talked to, including myself, has pretty much had zero luck. So why would you invest in this stuff in the first place? And I think the reason Ravi's talking about this is because oil and gas drilling, uh, the intangible drilling costs of that, the the effectively what it does now especially because of the um because of bonus depreciation is that even for w2 employees and w2 income you can effectively write off your entire uh investment in the first year so again even if it's w2 income say you invested you know $50,000 uh in oil and gas uh, most of the time now what you're going to be able to do is deduct that full 50 uh, $50,000 off of your AGI and then not be taxed on that amount. So there, there's an immediate benefit to that, which is, of course, to get the tax benefit. And that's a type of return itself. The problem that I have had, and I think that a lot of people that I talk to have, is the rest of it is really just like, you know, hoping you make a little bit of money after that. This is highly speculative. So that's the nature of the game. I am personally not a huge fan of oil and gas investments. There's also a lot of opportunity now with uh, bonus depreciation. Now, Tom Wheelwright will be on the show again soon, and we'll talk about this more for 2019 planning. If you have, for example, if you have, for example, some passive income, say you're, uh, and Ravi, I know you're a, a physician. I remember, I think it was GI doc or something. But say you own part of a, uh, you know, a surgery center, or you own part of a uh, something that creates a, a passive element to your income, uh, you could basically, you know, if you invest in real estate that is offering bonus depreciation, you can effectively do the same thing where you can, uh, you know, you can take that, that investment that you make and write that off the first year by, say, uh, you know, taking that depreciation against the passive gains that you're getting from your surgery center income or something like that. So there's lots of ways to do it that I think that are more predictable. Um, 
I'm not a huge oil and gas guy, but again, uh, I know you're part of that group. So check out that archive call. It was like a full hour or more of just talking about oil and gas. And there was a lot of names, specific names of, of operators, et cetera, and experiences there, which obviously in a public situation like this, I'm not really allowed to do. So hopefully that's helpful. Okay. Um, let's see. Madeline, we want to read the next one? Yeah, we have Jonah who says, hey, Buck, I'm wondering how you'd think about allocating your investments into different categories with different purposes. For example, I see cash flowing high velocity real estate syndications as the primary driver of wealth building in my portfolio while leveraging wealth formula banking, but want to balance it with investments in vehicles like Velocity Plus, AHP, Life Settlements, Precious Metals, etc., I'm wondering how would you think about the purpose goal of each of those and how they fit together as percentages of an ideal real estate, or excuse me, real asset portfolio? Good question. And um, I think the answer is not going to be the probably satisfying, you know, really satisfying, but really, it's really about your own personal financial goals. It's really where you're at now, where you want to be, your risk tolerance, et cetera. You know, uh, it's uh, when it comes to real estate and cash flow. Um, you know, I have done. I've thought about this a lot, right? If you have a job already that makes a lot of money, you have cash flow, right? And and so sometimes people thinking about cash flow, and it sounds like really, um, it it sounds like something that would be really nice to have if you could just replace your income, etc. But the problem you find in a situation like that is that eight or nine or even 10% at a time, imagine how much you have to put into a cash flow investment before you actually are getting into the, um, the kinds of numbers you need to replace your, you know, your W-2 income or whatever you do as a professional. It's a lot, right? So because of that, I won't say I'm, you know, I'm not, I'm still not a cash flow person. I am, but I think that you have to realize that if you're trying to create you know, for example, $100,000 of cash flow um, to replace your, you know, your income or whatever, at 10%, you're going to have to invest a million bucks. If you want to do 200000 it's going to be 2 million bucks. And it takes time to do that. Now, alternatively, if you look at uh, real estate also as an equity play, and, um, and I know, Jonah, that you know our infinite uh, returns model, if for those of you who don't know about that, go to wealthformula.com and investment opportunities and look at infinite returns. But in a situation like that, you're recycling capital. You're not really getting, you're not really relying on your eight or nine percent. What you're hoping is to recycle the same income in over and over and over again. So I agree with you. That's really a wealth creation type vehicle. And for most people, I think. That is, you know, who are listening to this and who are accredited investors already making a lot of, you know, decent income. I think focusing on that might be more useful because if you can create enough equity, at some point you can stop doing that. And, and then that eight or nine or 10% start looking more attractive because you've created enough mass to, to actually turn the needle with that, you know, eight, nine, 10%. Now let's let's just talk about some of the other things because obviously you know I just mentioned this um, mostly focused on the real estate uh, the type that that we're doing in a credit investor club now notes uh, like AHP for example I think you mentioned that 
The way I look at that, for me, it's a bond, right? What's a bond? It's effectively getting interest. It's non-performing notes. It's interest, and uh, there's there, but there's no capital appreciation. So is that a bad thing? No, it's not a bad thing, but just understand it's a fixed percentage return. Um, the one thing that's nice about AHP servicing is, of course, there's a lot of liquidity there, which I like about their fund. But generally speaking, this is, again, this is cash flow without an expectation of capital growth. And so maybe if, so a couple of places you could look for that. Maybe it's where you store cash until you find a good appreciation opportunity. Or maybe if you're looking for more cash flow, this might be an immediate way to to do that. I mean, if you're feeling like, you know what, I, I really, you know, actually could use a little bit more cash on a monthly basis, well, there you go. But uh, I think most of the people I talk to in the investor group, they're already making a lot of money. So, you know, that may or may not be the reason to use it uh, again. But it is a, certainly a great place to, to hold money for periods of time while you're waiting for something else to get into. Now, let's talk about some of the other things that you mentioned. You mentioned um, uh, wealth formula banking, I think. Again, I look at this as holding cash. And, and instead of in a bank, you're holding it and getting like five and a half percent returns. You're, you know, you're adding leverage to your cash flow investments by borrowing against it using the arbitrage of, you know, the the interesting thing, again, with wealth formula banking is that even when you're borrowing it, if your money's growing at 5.5% compounding, you're borrowing it at a simple interest rate. And so your money continues to grow at a compounding rate, and you're borrowing at a simple rate. So you have that, you know, we had, uh, we had Rod and Christian on last week, but that's a way to enhance your current cash flowing investments or your future enhance uh, cash flowing investments. But it's also a great place to just stash cash, right? Because now you're growing at five and a half percent tax free instead of, you know, in a bank where you're guaranteed to lose money, right? And why do I say guaranteed to lose money? Um, this should is probably this should be very obvious to most of you. But inflation is probably two percent plus right now. And if you're getting in the bank, you're getting less than one percent. So what that means is if you have money in the bank, whatever you are losing money. It's not if you lose money, you're guaranteed to lose money if you have money sitting in the bank. So Velocity Plus, similar uh, product you mentioned. Again, it's exposure to equity markets with leverage, but not, uh, you know, but only taking the upside, not the downside. And I think in markets like right now where it's very volatile, again, that is uh, something I think it's pretty appealing. Life settlements. This is basically something where you, you know, you're just buying an eight, you know, somebody else's uh, uh, life insurance policy, which is something that most people don't know about. Berkshire Hathaway does, you know, six hundred million dollars a year, uh, six hundred million dollars a year in this, but it's basically buying, you know, uh, cash. Or it's 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 basically buying life insurance policies from elderly individuals who need money now. You buy it at a discount, you hold it, and you know they pass away. They use the money while they're alive, and then you get the death benefit. So, it, the 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 big thing with life settlements, in my opinion, again, there's not a lot of appreciation there. Uh, this is a hedge, right? It's the ultimate hedge because the only guarantee in life we know is death. And what you're doing is you're parking money somewhere, knowing that it's going to return something at some point. And so it's a hedge, right? Uh, precious metals, again, it's a hedge, but it's a different kind of hedge. Now, 
it's it's a hedge against inflation. Now, I'm going to say this again, and I've said this uh, in in shows recently. I don't know that I necessarily, you know, if, see a lot of advantage of holding precious metals over real estate. You know, right now, uh, if you think about gold, what is the point of of owning gold? The point of owning gold is really to hedge inflation, right? You're you're worried that the dollar is weakening, uh, that there's a lot of debt and all those things. Um, but remember, physical gold is not very liquid, and neither is uh, real estate. And if you sell physical gold, the taxes you'll get hammered on, and you can't cash flow from metals. So if the goal is ultimately to you know to invest or to to hedge inflation. I don't see a lot of benefit necessarily of holding gold over uh, real estate. Now, the one exception to that I will say is, um, for example, there is, and you know, I, I don't really do paper, but you know, there is GLD, which is the gold ETF. It probably, you know, from my opinion, at least, would be a relatively stable place to have some money right now, and um, and still have a level of liquidity. I spoke to somebody recently, actually, who was holding some money in GLD, and was do, and and was uh, was actually cash flowing uh, from the from options on that money. Now, obviously, you have to learn a little bit about that, but that's actually a pretty smart way to go. So, if you if you really want to hold something that you think is a hedge against inflation, it doesn't cash flow. You make it cash flow by you know by 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 selling options. Uh, that's uh, potentially really really useful way of doing it again. But that again is if uh, the the major um benefit of that over real estate would simply be that you have liquidity in GLD uh as opposed to real estate in which you wouldn't. So, it's a long answer and as you know, I appreciate the question. It's just so personal. It just really depends where you're at in life. And for me personally, you know, right now uh as you know cuz you're in the investor group I like the idea of constantly looking at building wealth. And so I'm still looking at multifamily real estate. Um, I'm looking at multifamily real estate that is moderately leveraged, that is value add. Self-storage, I think, which showed significant um, resilience against against the types of uh, uh, setbacks in 2008 is another thing to look at. And of course, I like the the insurance products that we talked about, because I think they are some of the safest things that you can possibly do right now. And I think historically, you look at that, um, the companies that we work with, uh, Penn Mutual, et cetera, they've been paying dividends since before the Civil War. It's safer than a bank. I mean, so um, by the way, if anybody wants to go uh, check those things out I'm talking about, go to wealthformulabanking.com. Okay, uh, next question, Madeline. The next one is from Wayne, who had a question on SBIRA. Okay, that's right. I remember looking at this one. So, Wayne, I'm not a uh, IRA specialist. In fact, I don't even have an IRA. Um, so, what I did was I sent this question over to Damien Lupo of uh, Total Financial Control. Uh, you may know uh, Damien for... Uh, from the QRP episode that we had. But anyway, why don't you go ahead and, and play that? Uh, I think he actually has the question. He actually reads a question too. So go ahead and play that, Madeline. Hey, this is Damien Lupo with Total Control Financial. Question is, if my 
retirement account is hit with a UBIT tax, will that income in the account still be taxed when I pull the money out? The answer is yes. Unfortunately, when UBIT gets hit, it is a double whammy. That gets paid when the event happens inside the retirement account. And then it also, if it's a regular retirement account, you're going to pay taxes when you pull it out. The good news is if you're doing real estate and you have your money inside of a qualified retirement plan, like an EQRP, you are not going to have UBIT tax if you have leverage, but you would with an IRA. So best choice is to just eliminate the whole thing and not have the UBIT ever happen. And then when you pull the money out, if it's a regular account, it'll have income tax. And even better, if it's a Roth account, there's no tax at all. So best case scenario, Roth account that you're doing real estate that's leveraged in the syndication and make sure it's done in an EQRP and not an IRA, and you'll never have any type of tax at all. Hopefully that answers your question, Wayne. I think the um, the bottom line is, I, again, I'm not an expert on this, but Damien, uh, as you know, was on this show before, and he studies this stuff a lot, so I thought it'd be good to get his perspective. It looks like, you know, and listen, the problem, this is a problem with the, the self-directed IRA for real estate. I mean, it, you do have some taxation, and you kind of have to make some decisions uh, it doesn't mean you don't invest in real estate. You just say, well, you know, is there a way I can do this more efficiently? If there isn't, what's my best option out there? And the best option still might be to invest in something that you have to uh, pay a little bit of tax on. So, um, but if you are uh, if you're interested in this EQRP that Damien is talking about, um, you can get his uh, book on this for free. He'll send it to you. You just uh, Text 44222 and uh, put QRP book. I think that's one word. Again, it's 44222 QRP book, and he'll send you the book. He'll send you a book on, on how that whole thing works. Again, I don't have a QRP, I don't have an IRA. I use banking and life insurance products for all retirement type products myself. But for those of you who do have self directed IRAs, the Good news is that you may be able to convert to an EQRP, and is uh, if that is the you know what, what Damien is saying is true, then that potentially even things that you've invested in already, uh, you could transfer them over to the EQRP and then not pay you bit uh, on those things. So again, check it out four four two 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 QRP book, and get the book for yourself and and read it. And uh, if you're interested, uh, I'm sure Damien will set you all up with that. Okay, uh, let's see here. Uh, the next question, and let's see. Go ahead, uh, Madeline, why don't you go ahead with the next one? All right. The next one is from Garth. It says, hello, Buck. Garth here from Portland, Oregon. I am trying to wrap my head around this wealth formula banking. Let me see if I got this straight. You open a whole life insurance account. The money you put into this account, you can then borrow from, but you can continue to make compounding interest on the money in your account, even though you took it out, like it's still there. The compounding interest turns out to be more than the simple interest you pay on the money you borrowed. So you end up ahead, plus you invest the money you borrowed and get returns from that money also. My question is, how much money does one have to have to start an account like this? I fall on the poorer side of the wealth scale as of now, but want to know how to tell when the time is right to start this. So conceptually, I think you got it right. Basically, what 
and and this was something that I thought was really unusual and sort of the aha moment for me too um, for Wealth Formula Banking, which is the idea is that you are creating this cat. You have a cash account, right? And it's growing at let's just say I think mine would be like five and a half percent compounding, right? The idea is that your money's growing at five and a half percent, but it's at a compounding interest rate. Now remember the difference between compounding interest and and uh, simple interest. It's a big difference, right? Just if you if you don't understand that, I'm not going to uh, explain it right now. But just Google the difference. You'll see the what I'm talking about. Now, here's the thing: you're making you're trucking along. You're making five and a half percent on that money, and one day you've got you know. $20,000 accumulated and you want to, you know, put it into something and, and you want to borrow it and say you borrowed at five and a half percent. Okay. Your money was growing at five and a half percent compounding. Now you're going to borrow it. When you borrow it, even if you borrowed at five and a half percent, it would be like simple interest, right? So simple five and a half percent compounding interest over time uh, is, makes a lot more money than paying five and a half percent simple interest. What you're saying is correct. In fact, your money itself, the cash uh, that is in your account, does not leave your account. It continues to grow at five and a half percent or whatever it is that it's growing at. When you're borrowing, you're actually borrowing from the insurance company, not from, uh, from a general account of the insurance company. And so that general account charges you a simple interest. So that is the beauty of that, right? That's why you can literally, therefore, invest the same money in two places at the same time. If you go to wealthformulabanking.com, I think you'll see in the webinar, I think that Rod goes through an example of the difference when you use that, you know, uh, when you deploy that out of an account like that versus, you know, just putting it through your savings account. It it makes a big difference. Now, hopefully uh, that makes sense. And then in terms of how rich or poor you need to be, you know, I don't, I didn't know the answer, so I just asked uh, uh, Christian and Rod to answer. So why don't you play that for us, Malin? Hi, this is Christian Allen. Um, I'm just going to take a second and answer a really great question that was asked, and that is, how much money do I need in order to get into a wealth formula banking policy? One of the things that we love about the strategy overall is that you don't have to be rich in order to utilize the strategy, start using the strategy. Now, of course, the more money that we have and can contribute to the policy, the more benefit that we're going to get from it. But it's nice to know that we can get in for just four or $500 a month. Some of it depends on how we can at least create the value that we want to create with it. So I hope that's helpful. So bottom line is, Garth, you don't need to have that much money. But it, the more money you have, the, you know, the more, more you can make it work. The Velocity Plus product, of course, is a little different. Um, I think the cutoff there is you got to make it, you got to make at least a hundred thousand dollars a year, uh, which is uh, still pretty nice though, because that product is based on a high net worth product where you generally have to, you know, you have to be making, you know, several hundred thousand dollars a year and have a net worth of, you know, at least you know three, four, five million dollars. So, it's still a great opportunity. Check it out, wealthformulabanking.com. Okay, uh, let's see. Let's go to the next question. Madeline. All right. The next one is also from Garth. He said, my parents are in their 80s and have money in an IRA. Currently, they get enough to take care of their needs from pension and social security. 
I was talking with them about the idea of taking around 70 to 80,000, about 35,000 from the IRA and getting a turnkey property. If they bought it in full, they could be getting around 400 to 600 a month in cash flow after management. When we asked their banker, they said it was risky for their age and with a recession coming, and where would I find a property for that price? We live in Oregon. I told them a good market in the Midwest. I think they thought I was nuts. I think they are nuts to call leaving all the money in the stock market and only get disbursements once a year when they could be getting cash flow every month with a real life asset. Am I wrong? Is rental real estate a young person's game? It's, it's a tricky call. And again, I don't want to give any sort of financial advice, but here I will say this though, that I think the rules do change a little bit when we get older. Um, when you're in your eighties and you know, you got to be really careful about not losing money, right? You go from being, uh, being able to take a lot of risks to, you know, having a little bit more, you know, trying to be a little bit more quote unquote conservative. And then ultimately it's just becomes a wealth preservation issue. I don't think in general that, um, there's two things that you said. I, I don't think keeping your money, uh, just sitting in equities right now is that smart. If you're in your eighties personally, I don't think that's uh, smart, but I also don't know that it makes sense necessarily to buy a single one single family home when you're in your 80s either because listen I think the the challenge is that you know if you're buying one single family home you know you're going to ultimately you're going to either cash flow or you're not going to cash flow if you're using leverage if there's nobody if there if if you don't have anybody living in there then you're going to be paying on that so I think I think buying one single family home depending on how much money they already have, I don't know if it makes sense or not, right? It really depends a lot on what their overall situation is. I'm not a huge fan of the idea, frankly, for people in their 80s just to buy one single-family home in, a, in an area where they're not familiar with because I think, you know, it's it's a tricky thing. I think I think the turnkey world can seem very easy, but sometimes it's it's a little bit more hazardous than it than it might appear. For me, as you know from listening to this, I have an inherent, you know, bias towards multifamily, inherent bias towards investing in larger funds, etc. I don't know if they're in a position to do that kind of thing, but I think those things are potentially a lot more, in my view, potentially a lot more stable. Uh, one thing I I would even draw your attention to again for a situation like that is you know maybe a small amount to, to consider even into AHP servicing something that I might I might personally do then you have 10% maybe it's not cash maybe it's not tax efficient but on the other hand you know if George is growing this thing to a 50 50 million dollar fund and these guys are really good at what they do the inherent risk in that might not be as significant there's also um the benefit there that you don't need to be accredited that might be worth checking out but again, I think making any sort of big big moves, anything that creates instability for people in their 80s may not be smart. Uh, and wh- while at the same time, we would tell you that you're probably right uh, about the equities part. Now, if they're in a bunch of bonds, listen, here at the end of the day, what our goal is is to create enough wealth while we're you know younger so that we can get to the point where all that money sitting there just making interest, right? That's really kind of what we want to do, interest or or cash flow. 
but when you're already in your 80s, you know, you just got to be really careful. So hopefully that that makes sense. I don't I don't it's a tricky thing. I don't want to give you too much advice and um, and have it. I don't want to give you any advice for that matter and, and have it go wrong. So, OK, next question. Ian says, hey, Buck, as you have described many times, there are many advantages to investing with proven, trustworthy, competent operators in a variety of real estate niches in the role of a limited partner. Among these is passivity. However, one of the trade-offs downsides is the lack of control of asset disposition. It is a trade of passivity for lack of control. I'm curious if you have an opinion or thoughts on portfolio balancing one's real estate holdings with some assets that are actively controlled with passive. Are there general rules that you are aware of? It seems to me that one could potentially become overweighted on the lack of control side of one's portfolio. Thanks for your thoughts. It's a good question. Uh, Ian, thanks. Uh, thanks again for uh, reaching out on that. The bottom line on real estate, in my view, is, uh, in my opinion, the big difference is, you know, either way, whether you're a limited partner or you are, you own a property, you know, it's, it's, it's illiquid, right? It's not really something that you're going to liquidate very quickly. I think you can find syndicators, you can find uh, opportunities where people are aligned with your goals. I mean, a couple examples you know, uh, my friend Ken McElroy, a rich dad advisor in real estate, his model is buy and hold forever. And that is a model that appeals to some. Uh, I'm an investor with Ken, and that's part of my portfolio. So there are others. Uh, as you know, we'll have, uh, we'll have uh, uh, Janet LePage on soon with Western Wealth Capital, which I'm a, a huge uh, fan and investor of. And they are uh, very much into the value add, um, turning these things quickly, trying to get out as as quickly as possible mode, uh, and making a lot of profit. So I think you can match up some of your goals with what the what the operator's intentions are. But I think either way, you run into this problem of liquidity. Um, and there are certainly you know investments out there, even funds that are are highly liquid, which give you some more flexibility. Um, such as AHP servicing, um, which we've mentioned a few times, um, and uh, which you can you know you can utilize that. It's it's very liquid. It, you know you have a lot of control over it. But let's get back to real estate because it's an important point that you bring up, and I think a lot of the the question really ultimately comes down to your own risk tolerance level. That is, uh, the risk tolerance of your own ability to manage a real estate asset of any sort of significance. Uh, let me give you an example. So I was talking to one of our um, investor group people. Um, by the way, if you are you know, an investor, you should sign up for Investor Club uh, because there's a lot of good stuff that happens in there. But I was talking to um, a dentist who is selling a part of his business. He's going to have a big liquidity event. And his CPA is a smart guy who I know personally who I um, used to be my CPA too, it suggested buying real estate and using cost segregation analysis and bonus depreciation to offset capital gains, which I think is brilliant. And I think it's, you know, it's, it's a great idea. Here's the problem. The guy that I am speaking to is a very, very good business guy, he and his wife, and they're coming into a few million dollars. They don't have experience uh, deploying 
and being asset managers for you know huge assets, right? So uh, for the amount of money that they're they're going to be getting in this liquidity event, they might be looking at buying a twenty twenty five million dollar asset. Now the reality is, if you feel comfortable in your own ability to manage an asset like that, then more power to you. I will say that you know as much real estate that as I have uh, been involved with, it's been smaller, you know, you know, personally owned myself and ma- managed the asset has generally been smaller than that. And I've never had all my full capital, you know, I've never had like, you know, 50% or 70% of my net worth in a project um, to put at risk. So if you feel comfortable with that, though, then more power to you. If you if you are really good at that and you think, gosh, I can take this and I can deploy this five or six million bucks, take down this $25 million asset, whatever, then go for it. The alternative is to let professional operators deploy your capital and this way in a syndication model. And, and in this situation, one of the major advantages is that you uh, are taking the risk out of your own hands. Right now, you're dealing with professional operators that do this day in and day out, and you're also investing in not one asset, but you're investing in, say, you know, maybe you're spreading it over five uh, different assets. You know, maybe you're spreading over five different assets in five different cities, and you know, exposure to thousands and thousands of doors, knowing that the asset manager, you know, used to be an asset manager at Graystar. Right. I mean, to me, the risk, the risk is inherently different. And and this isn't just apply to people who are investing, you know, millions of dollars at a time. And the same could be saying if you were deploying one hundred thousand dollars or two hundred thousand dollars. Let's take two hundred thousand dollars, for example. Right. So maybe you're going to buy what will two million dollars get you or, two, or I'm sorry, two hundred thousand dollars get you. If you deploy $200,000 of equity, maybe you can buy an asset that's, you know, maybe about a million bucks, right? Inherently, again, one of the problems that, in my opinion, you run into is that a smaller asset is less stable than, say, a $20 million asset. And now the performance of that that individual investment lies entirely on your shoulders, right? So you could buy that $1 million asset and deploy that $200,000 there, or you could do $25,000, $50,000 a deal and deploy it across multiple deals, exposure to thousands of doors, and then uh, have the benefit of, of, of that kind of stability with professional operators. I get what you're saying. I totally know what you're saying. For me personally, uh, as you know, I have uh, we've talked before, I've sold off the vast majority of, of, of the, my real estate holdings so that I can participate primarily in, in syndications at this point. And it is because of that reason, because I want exposure to thousands of doors. I can tailor what I want to um, the syndication group. I can invest with Ken if I want, to, I want to buy and hold forever. I can invest with you know the Western Wealth guys if I want capital growth um, and want to try to get the money back out quickly. So I can do that. Now, um, and again, for me right now, uh, I'm only really interested in value add in this market, pushing equity into properties. I don't myself have the expertise or the time to do anything like, um, you know, these professional operators do. And for those of you who are in 
um, the Investor Club, you've seen this in the webinars. I mean, this kind of stuff, you have to ask yourself, can I compete with this? I mean, it's kind of insane the type of turnarounds that 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 these guys are capable of. But, you know, when I invest as a, um, as a limited partner, what I'm finding is that my cash-on-cash cash returns and my overall annualized returns are similar, if not better, than they were at the time of... Uh, you know, of, of some of my, most of my buildings. Now, some of them have been unicorns because I bought them and got ridiculous returns because I bought them at the right time and it's a frothy market and people paid stupid money for them. But, you know, I, right now in an environment where it's really about creating equity, I'm not confident in my own ability to do that. So I lean on professional operators and, um, you know, rather than going for individual assets that I control, I avoid headaches, I don't have any liability, and I get the same tax benefits which is and financial benefits. So hopefully that's uh, helpful. Now, what we're finding here is that we have, uh, we, we have a lot of questions, which is great. So what I want to do is we're going to wrap it up for this week, and uh, we'll play the second half of this Ask Buck show at another time. So with that, uh, with some final thoughts, I'll be back in just a minute. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Uh, I have uh, hopefully enjoyed that. Hopefully you got something out of it. And we're going to continue with that uh, next week because we got so many questions. And for those of you who contributed, I hope I added value. I know some of the things that, you know, the reality is that their personal opinions, everything's sort of a personal opinion in this space. And you just have to collectively listen to what I say, what others say, and put it together and and come up with what you think. Finally, I want to remind you again, if you're an accredited investor, join Investor Club because next year we are going to do some really cool stuff and I do not want you to get left behind. Go to wealthformula.com and just click Investor Club. You fill out some paperwork and uh, we get on a call actually. We actually will talk. Uh, We'll do a little orientation with a couple other investors in the group and uh, it'll be fun. So check that out at wealthformula.com. That's it for me this week on Wealth Formula Podcast. Merry Christmas. We'll see you in the new year. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast. Visit us on the web at wealthformula.com. The information contained in this podcast are opinions, not fact. As always, consult your own financial team before making any investment. See you next time. Worried about saving too little too late for retirement? The Wealth Accelerator may be exactly what you need. With the help of some of the oldest and most reliable insurance companies in the country, Wealth Accelerator allows you to take most of the upside of any good year in the stock market and use bank loans to magnify those returns significantly. And what if the stock market has a bad year? No need to fear. Wealth Accelerator is engineered so you don't participate in the losses of the market, no matter how bad of a year it is. Sounds too good to be true, right? But it's not. It's simply the same financial engineering that the ultra-wealthy have been doing for years. Now it's your turn. Check it out for yourself by going to WealthFormulaBanking.com. Again, that's WealthFormulaBanking.com.